Race is such a large part of people's lived experience, which means it's a large part of mental health. We cannot ignore the vast effects that race relations have on well-being, which is one of the reasons why this conversation is so important. Today, we decided to interview Dr. Lorenza Lockett, a K-State professor and social worker in hopes that his personal and professional experience can grow our understanding of race so we can better come alongside people of all communities. Dr. Lockett has published an article on the K-State website titled The Four A's of Anti-Racism that is incredibly valuable, and we wanted to give him a chance to expand on the ideas expressed there. You can find it with a quick Google search. Before we get started, The Thrive Podcast wants to offer a content warning for this week's episode. This episode, we will be discussing racism and uncensored racial slurs for learning purposes. This may be activating for some listeners. If you are not in an environment or place in your life where this will be safe or even manageable for you to listen to, please consider not listening to this episode and catching us in a later one or listening in a time when you feel more supported or with someone who cares about you. As always, it may be a good idea to plan some self-care afterwards, and if you're a K-State student, counseling services are available. We would like to point out that the views expressed and stories told in this podcast are solely each speaker's own. Before we recorded this podcast, Dr. Lockett wanted to point out that he cannot speak for all Black people, but can speak through the authentic voice of one Black man, himself. As always, the best way to learn about someone else's experience is to listen. Nobody owes you their story, so we are incredibly grateful that Dr. Lockett took the time to share his with us. My name is Cole, I'm a social work student, and I'm joined by Chris Bowman, health educator at Lafayette Health Center. Let me know if I'm talking too loud, not loud enough. Okay. Yeah. And it's also like, since it's not live, like if we need to take a restroom break or if you want to re-say something, we can mm-hmm. just like pause and do it over okay. again. Okay. Um, but if you're ready, we can get into it. I'm ready it. to roll. Yeah. Man. We All are right. live and recording. Well, Dr. L, we are so excited to have you here on this podcast. I was wondering if we could start out by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and why racial hearing, racial healing is so important to you. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm a... Uh, professor here at Kansas State University. I'll just go backwards. I uh, got my PhD here in family studies. Uh, I teach social work here at K-State. I got my master's degree at Arizona State University and my bachelor's degree here in the very program I'm teaching now at K-State. I came here as a 44-year-old non-traditional student, uh, freshly out of the Army. I did 20 years, two months and two days uh, in uh, the field of artillery. Uh, retired at uh, Fort Riley and wanted to go to school and do something. Mm. And um, I have a pretty uh, deep background with race-related uh, issues. Uh, coming, being born in 1951, living in a very conservative state, small town in Oklahoma, experienced a lot of a um, lot of things that I w- wish I could just forget about, but can't because uh, there's a lot of work to yet to be done. And I decided to come to K-State and uh, get a degree in social work because I really wanted to to, to help. Mm-hmm. And I um, had no idea I would be teaching school. I was working with a uh, program for kids uh, called Upward Bound, kids from low-income, uh, first-generation families whose parents uh, had no history of college and preparing them for getting ready for ACT and writing skills and uh, social development skills and all those things. And eventually uh, ran into one of my previous professors that asked me if I wanted to be a an instructor. This was back in 2008. And I'm going like, sure. And I tried it out, found that it was a great fit. Mm-hmm. I really liked, enjoyed teaching. And that inspired me to go back and get to get my PhD so I can get on a tenure track. And so I started that venture while teaching full time. 
I uh, social work full time, uh, got my PhD in family studies. Uh, 2015, I graduated and uh, promoted to assistant professor and just been doing my work with racial healing and uh, trying to communicate and get people to talk uh, in a safe and effective way about this this stigma, this 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 disease, I'll call it almost, that we in America can't seem to get over the hump. Mm-hmm. Race has been just shadowing us from day one, seemed like. And um, we made a lot of uh, inroads, but I realized uh, that I needed to get out of the classroom into the community and uh, start doing something independently, specifically, personally, because racism really is a personal thing. Mm. There are a lot of institutions that uphold racist ideas, but every institution is comprised of person after mm-hmm. person after person. Yeah, and it's so almost like you have to reach the person before you can address the entire system. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so you, as as a black man, as a person, um, would you mind painting for us a picture, kind of your relationship with racism as you grew up and your history with it? Oh man, I got tons of history. I know you said more than I would like to remember. And I, I'll just start with this: I used to be a racist, mm-hmm. and I say that uh, not with pride. But uh, I had what I would call self-justified. We hear a lot about uh, implicit and explicit bias. Uh, My term is self-justified bias. I was a racist because, you know, uh, I've been carrying the stigma and the trauma of racism for generations. My grandfather was born in 1867, okay, in America. Things are not good for us then. My father was born in 1902, uh, and he has a, a legacy of uh, racial disparities and infran- uh, disenfranchisements and infringements and all the things that go along with it. The very place that he worked in as a cook, we couldn't eat in. Mm. And there were signs on the, you know, colors only and the rhetoric, the language in the community was the, the N-I-G-G-E-R word. Uh, some people don't like to pronounce that word in the vernacular, we say the N-word. Well, the N-word don't mean nothing to me, mm. like the word nigger was. Mm-hmm. I never was called an N-word, but I've been called a nigger a lot of times. And it carries uh, such a deep, scarring, emotional, uh, limiting, um, just history that that uh, takes away dignity and a sense of self-worth and it creates a lot of internal problems that, that comes out expressed in external behavior. Mm. And a lot of times people pay more attention to the external behavior than the internal problems that created it. So um, I was mad, angry, young man. I wanted to get back at white America. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, at that time, when I was about 16 years old, uh, the people on the landscape that were really leading the country in terms of uh, racial bias was King and Malcolm, uh, Dr. King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And I decided to go the route of Malcolm X. Uh, and the sad thing is I shouldn't have, have to been a, in a position to make that choice. Uh, and so I was racist. I, I, I hated white people. I hated white people to the core. I remember when I was about going back about 10 years old. We lived in a small, uh, isolated community of black people, maybe about three to 600 people, I don't know, across the tracks where the, where the pavement stopped and the dirt roads began. 
where we had uh, very few light bulbs, uh, uh, street lights uh, on the corners. Or in the park that we played uh, for recreation, we had one little bare light bulb uh, that sat on top of a pole. We had uh, two sandboxes. I can just remember it so vividly. We had uh, a one-hoop basketball court and a, a field we played football and baseball and, and, and whatnot in. Um, just very limited. Went to an all-black school uh, up until the sixth grade when we uh, integrated in Oh, early, late 50s, early 60s, I forget. And uh, talking about trauma. Mm. Uh, the the integrated, integration was great in some ways on the uh, uh, macro scale, uh, but on the micro scale, it was a nightmare. Those white teachers didn't want us there. The students didn't want us there. We had fights. Uh, we got expelled from school. We were mistreated. We were demeaned. Uh, and I hated white people. And uh, when I... Uh, got up to, to the age where I could be physically involved. I began to be physically involved with, with, with the, not gang related, but we'd go up to up to o, OSU on the campus and fight the white boys up there who were racist and trying to perpetuate uh, their ideology. And, and uh, we felt like uh, we could make a statement there. And we wore a lot of black gloves and we were the Junior Afro-American Society, and we were the Junior Black Panthers, and you know Bobby Seals, uh, H. Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis. Uh, these are people who were my heroes. You know, mm -hmm. Black revolutionaries uh, who were very defiant, and uh, that uh, captured my um, mm. interest. It, it captured my way of fighting back. Uh, but all the time that that was happening, inside of my heart it wasn't happening. Mm. You know, when I was with the fellas kicking it up and and doing what we did, and it wasn't so much that we were vandals or destructive, we were just reactive. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were hurt and we were angry and, and we felt powerless, but this was our way of exercising power. We actually had a little race ride uh, in Oklahoma in the 60s, 70s, I forget, uh, I was about 15, 16. I remember getting thrown through a barbershop window, you know, oh, wow. yeah, uh, by a, a white guy. And, uh, and uh, I went down to the hood and, and got my buddies and we came back and we kicked some butt. Uh, so it's been very volatile, uh, a lot of memories. Uh, but eventually uh, my heart was touched by this white lady. I call her the little white lady who... I played uh, sports with her, her sons, and she invited me to their home and treated me with decency and and respect. and And uh, I do chores, and we we'd have hot dogs and and chips uh, on the weekend, and wash the cars and cut the grass. And I sleep overnight on clean sheets on a bed by myself. And I'm going to like, what's this little white lady up to? Mm -hmm. She does something that. Um, I, uh, the phrase I use in my teaching philosophy in the classrooms, treat the person, not the behavior. That's what she did to me. She understood, and she 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 wasn't a college graduate. She was a single mom, um, probably in her late 30s, mid 40s. Uh, they just treated me as a human being. And so I had that that duality going on, that conflict going on. It's like, but I hate white people. Mm -hmm. Why Why is this woman doing something nice to me. Yeah, I remember 
one incident that that really sticks out to me when I think about all the things that I've, I've experienced in terms of racial bias and bigotry and, and insults is from a, from a kid. Mm. I'm walking from uptown. We had to leave White Town by a certain time of the day, uh, evening, and uh, coming across from where the pavement stopped and the dirt roads began, uh, this little white girl, about six years old, mommy, mommy, that goes a nigger. Can I pull his tail? <laughs> ah, that just, and I stopped. And that was just so transformative to me. That's what really propelled me to think more as time evolved about, let's do it like Malcolm said, by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. White folks want to fight, let's fight. But still in my heart, there was something that was going on that this uh, white lady impressed upon me by her behavior and by her uh, treating me as a human being. And um, she would buy my uniforms and it, it no, no cost, you know, no payback. Uh, uh, me and her sons became very good friends. And uh, that always quote unquote bothered me. And uh, eventually it got to me to the point that uh, I started changing my expressions. I started understanding more about what Dr. King was saying and that being a racist, being full of hatred never, never helped me. Not one single time. You know, in my private conscious, uh, I was ashamed of myself. Mm. You know, in my private conscious, I knew that wasn't the me that I could, that I could be. And that, um, that lady really left an indelible uh, print uh, on my soul. And uh, I decided one day that I was going to be different. And it, was a, it wasn't a quick uh, ch change, a changeover. It took a lot of time. And uh, I experienced a lot of more racist things that I had to fight with. Uh, instead of turning left or turning right or whichever direction is opposed to uh, how I had been. And uh, eventually uh, joined the Army uh, in uh, 1974. And had a lot of racist experiences there. We'd actually have race relations meetings uh, in our uh, units uh, because you had white boys who just didn't want. To. So you could make rank in the army, and they didn't want to listen to us. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, I'm your boss, <laughs> okay? Uh, and uh, but the army helped uh, me to, to understand a lot of things about leadership and discipline and. And, um, and structure. And those things working together with that little white lady in the back of my mind uh, propelled me because I began to make rank well and do well. Uh, and I realized that white people could only limit me as much as I would allow myself to empower them. And that uh, two things I needed to do. One was get an education and one to get some clout, okay? Uh, in my mind, it's like white people understand intelligence and white people understand how to make money, how to be independent. And if I can be that and create a structure uh, to speak from, then I can uh, go forward in life and uh, be a voice against racism uh, and share my own legacy uh, with that uh, debauchery and limited uh, 
way of uh, uh, thinking. And uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell. Yeah, it sounds like that little white lady was the first white person that treated you with dignity and respect. And it yeah. was such a stark opposition to everything you'd experienced from other people, even even a young girl mm -hmm. um, with her mother. Yeah, wow. yeah, it, it was, I kept waiting for her to show her true color. Hmm. You know, white people just didn't do that unless they had some something to gain, some agenda. Hmm. She didn't. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm glad people like her exist because, I mean, I I want to see everyone respected. And I think it makes me really sad when people don't do that. But it makes me really happy when people kind of stand against the status quo. Yeah. And yeah. hearing you talk about her as well mm -hmm. says a lot. Yeah. And, and she... She caught the heat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she caught the heat from her community. Mm. Uh, it, 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 when when people talk about addressing racism, and when I say people, I, I mean the dominant culture, white people, mm -hmm. who have their hearts in the right places, uh, want to see a change, uh, and go to a lot of extremes except that one extreme. When it start costing them something, mm -hmm. you know, then it becomes, oops, uh, maybe not so. I'm not the racist, uh, but uh, I can't make that sacrifice. This little white lady did. Mm. Yeah, and that meant a lot. Mm -hmm. um, something that you've kind of been talking about that had been somewhat of a hot topic was this concept of reverse racism or that um, racism can come from people of all different races. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, we're all racist. Uh, we're all biased. Um, and we're all, uh, I'm generalizing now, want to do well, want to advance, want to go forward. And there's a lot of opportunities, opportunities out there. And um, sometimes in the pursuit of our own independence, we are not sensitive to the needs of other people. And uh, so I've been in, in positions where I could um, exercise whatever power I had to advance myself. And that's not so bad. What's bad is when it's at the cost of somebody else. So uh, although I, I, I really feel that uh, in the center of its uh, existence in America, Racism is a white-based problem. Mm. And that's hard for white people to receive that. We want to talk about uh, uh, reverse racism. It's like you have to have power to discriminate. Okay? We can all be prejudiced, and we all are. Mm -hmm. But when you can uh, institutionalize things, you can structurally, developmentally uh, have the power to uh, uh, control uh, I can I can be discriminatory all day long. Uh, excuse me, I can be uh, uh, prejudiced and, and race-based in my philosophy all day long, but if I don't have any power to exercise it over you, so what? Uh, and that's the biggest difference uh, I see with reverse discrimination is black people and minorities don't have the same power base that white people do to exercise over them. I've never had to have, other than teaching and being in the military, had a white person have to come to me for anything. Mm -hmm. If I want to buy a car, it's with the white man, usually the white man, not so much the white female. I want to buy a home, 
same thing. Go to the bank, same thing. Get a job. Uh, how many uh, black people hold those kind of institutional uh, positions uh, in this country? Has it gotten better? You betcha. But uh, so there, there is uh, reverse racism, but the ability to exercise and to uh, limit uh, other people groups is not nowhere close to being the same. Mm. Yeah, it almost seems like it's like racism and prejudice is one thing, and mm. then discrimination and oppression is yes. its own thing. Absolutely. And has different requirements. Yeah, and people want to make them uh, exchangeable, and they're not. Mm. Uh, they may be in philosophy, but in the actual impact of the phenomenological lived experiences, they are not the same. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned this a little bit before, but um, as you have been um, living your life, how have you seen racism changed, if it has at all? I see, uh, this is what kind of led to my four A's on anti-racism. I see white people that are genuinely uh, committed and uh, concerned about the plight of African-Americans and other minority groups in this country. And since we, one of the bigger things that have changed over the years is we've always had a voice, but now we're able to exercise our voice at a different level with social media, with more education. One of the greatest things that the white man did for us and the worst thing he did for himself was allowed us to be educated, okay? Uh, and because of the education and taking that, that road that uh, is using your mind, using your brain uh, more than uh, your brawn uh, has, has opened doors and opportunities for uh, advancement. So I, I see uh, the, the um, what the uh, millennials and the generations coming forward, a whole different approach, mm -hmm. not totally, but a whole different approach to the racial issue in this country. Why? Because they see us. They sit next to us. They hear us talk. They become friends with us. And uh, the voices are out there that are not as limited as it was back in the 50s and 60s. The white man controlled the newspaper. We had three radio stations. Wasn't never anybody on those channels looked like me. There was never a representative on the news or uh, in leadership or, or whatever uh, would look down. You know, I remember when we were uh, going to integrate the schools and how blacks was on one side and whites was on the other side and the white and the, and the sock hops now. And we were doing our dancing in the two, four beat and the white folks was on a one, three beat and they were shaking and bucking and looked like they was having some kind of conniption <laughs> compared to us, you mm -hmm. know, but not look at it now. It's like white folks and black folks, they're on the dance floor, they're entertainers, they this and that. Uh, you have a lot of uh, uh, interrace, uh, marriage, you know, cross-cultural relationships, uh, it can't be denied. It's too many visual things. It's too many lived things that says they are good. They are equal to us and sometimes better. I can remember, you know, if you look at the top 
10 quarterbacks in the NFL? Black man. You know, there was a time when they couldn't be. Doug Williams was one of the first black men to win a national, uh, what they call Super Bowl, mm -hmm. okay, of all the years that black folks have been playing in the NFL. And then lately in the last 10, 15 years, just, you know, you got the Patrick Holmeses and the Wilsons and the, you know, all over the place. So there's evidence that can't be denied uh, as strongly as it was mm -hmm. uh, back on the farm and in the suburbs or wherever uh, the message was that said, there goes a nigger. It's like that message is not received in the same way. Mm -hmm. People see us differently, the millennials in Ford. What do they call now? Generation C? I think we're on Z, Generation on Z. Yeah. Z. I, I heard a C generation. I think it's related to COVID just recently. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So because be. kids that are growing up in the COVID, short-lived COVID. Uh, so anyway, maybe that's going to be the next. Uh, but anyway, the point is that t we have cameras and we have. I remember when uh, BET, Black Entertainment Network, came out, white folks were livid, and I'm speaking mm -hmm. in general. Why they got to have their own show? It's like, really? You got 900 shows, and you're concerned about black people having one? You know, but uh, uh, technology and uh, the social landscape has changed, and black folks achieving uh, where uh, they are, we are achieving, and getting the recognition. We have white people now going back, restating history to let people know that, yeah, it was, a, it was the black man that created the stop sign, the stoplight. Mm -hmm. It was a black man that created the golf tee. The first open heart surgery was by a black man, you know, uh, bringing that rich history that was uh, denounced, uh, that was not shared in the schools. And these young people, they, they, they got... Uh, the little books for kids, you know, four, five, and six years old with little black kids in there. They got dolls that have different color skin tones. It's, it just, what has advanced uh, and changed the landscape is technology and exposure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you think, and, and you know, when the civil rights with, the, with TV and then mm -hmm. the nation having more access to it, limited access as you spoke, um, and then today with social media, it's easier. It's easier to be exposed. I mean, I know they're 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 similar. There's differences, but there's also similarities. Um, am I kind of getting that right? I'm kind of thinking about yeah, the exposure. Absolutely. See, the TV was used against us. You know, like J. Edgar Hoover was not MLK, Dr. King's friend at all, and he wanted to do everything he could. So one of the mediums he had was the TV, mm -hmm. and black people didn't have a voice on the TV. You know. When they were uh, sicking dogs on us and doing water hoses and, and, and hanging our people and burning, blowing up churches and stuff, they did that like we were the culprit, you know. But now they don't control uh, the media to the extent that they do. And uh, back then, you'd hear stories long through in the newspaper long before uh, the real story came out. And people weren't exposed to having to think differently like i i taught you guys and, and teach today i'm not trained trying to change your mind young white student i'm trying to put something else on your mind and then you decide if you want to be a racist you want to be this you want that's your business but at least uh i'm thankful that the doors have become open so my voice 
can touch your ears. And really, my, my destiny is not your ears. My destination is not your ears. It's your soul. Because your soul don't lie to you. Politics lie to you. Religions can lie to you. Ideologies can lie to you. But when you see, when you feel in uh, the, the resonation of your being that that's not right, like I, when I was struggling with the, the dichotomy between that's this white woman and the rest of white America, my soul told me, she's legit. Hmm. She's honest. My soul told me, you can trust her. Now, all the other things in, the, in, the, in society and the things I was experiencing says, white folks are devils. That's what we call you guys. Hmm. You know, we didn't have a a word uh, that we could uh, put alongside the N-word that really carried any weight. We, the, the, the most vicious we could call you guys was crackers and peckerwoods. Mm-hmm. And now folks laugh at being a cracker and a peckerwood. Uh, but there are, there are those authentic voices that are being exercised because of people like you, Cole. No one's forcing you to do this. That may be, be some risk uh, that, and things that you have to may encounter because you're doing this. But it's rolling. You know, the, 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 the snowball is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And more people are participating. Participating. And, and, and without getting too much into white supremacy, I think this is the, the fear that's in white supremacists. They realize that their days are kind of numbered. And they're desperate to hold on to the space and the air that really wasn't theirs. They took it. How are you going to take the air from me? Mm-hmm. The air that I breathe is no threat to you. Why do you need all the air? Why do you have to keep having the advantage in order to advance yourself? Are you that weak? Mm-hmm. No. Give me a chance to compete with you and we'll see how strong you are. Mm-hmm. And you'll see how strong I am. Uh, so the landscape has changed because of technology, because of people, students who sit in, in classes and been impressed in the annals of higher education to think differently, to think more critically, and especially when they get to hear it from an authentic voice. I can't take credit for where you are. I believe that every time I speak in the classroom, I'm afforded the opportunity to make a difference. I know all students don't receive it. That's okay. But the ones and one after one that does, that's where the difference comes. Hmm. We've talked a lot about um, where where these movements have come from and where they're going. Where would you like to see them go in the future? Into more action. Hmm. Um, and they are. They're, they're going in a way that's um, um, positive, it's effective. Uh, they're not going at the pace that I would like to see, but uh, as a society, I feel that we're going forward. And, and what in, what uh, suggests that to me is not so much the actions of those who are anti-racist, it's the actions of those who are racist. They are they're they're scared, in, in my opinion. Mm. They're getting desperate, and and what's making them desperate is not the black horde that's coming from them. It's the black and the white horde that's coming from them. The power to overcome racism, again, lies in uh, the creation 
uh, uh, of its origin, white people. Uh, when, you, when you stand up and you look like them and you have position and you have influence and you're stand, standing beside, in this case, me, uh, that's a dual threat. And you have access theoretically to the same sources and institutional power and structures that they do, and they know that. Mm. I may not quite be there across the board. Black folks haven't filled a lot of those voids, but we have. But uh, in a way, I, I think people like you and Chris, you're a greater threat to a white supremacists than black folks are. Mm. That's really interesting to think about. I think that's the first time I've heard anybody say something like that to mm -hmm. me as a white man. Mm -hmm. um, kind of moving forward, this the podcast that we've been um, discussing and talking about and putting out has been a lot about mental health. Uh, could you share with us how race and mental health has kind of intersected in your own life? Oh gosh, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> first of all, you know, you go back to the the. Tuskegee story mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. black people were injected with, what was it? Syphilis, Syphilis. Mm -hmm. you know, and they thought that they were getting some other kind of help and long story short, uh, that has always been the landscape that relates to, uh, that stands as a very strong visual landscape that relates to the legacy of black people not trusting white folks with their mind. Mm. We don't go to them for mental health. For years and years and years, when I grew up, we knew who the people were that had mental health issues, and we took care of them. You know, uh, we protected them. We made sure that even within our own circles, we were not abusive or disrespectful. Them, man, you know that's that's Leroy. Leave Leroy alone. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, and for a long time. Uh, Black folks would not go to counseling. Mm -hmm. uh, we just didn't trust white people to, to get inside of our heads that way. Uh, so, but but over the years, and again through education and through the uh, positive side of upward mobility, upward mobility was good in the sense that we got out of the hood and got into suburbia and whatever. But a lot of the strong leaders people who uh, had figured it out left the hood. Uh, so it, it has some pros and cons. Um, but we begin to uh, hear about black people going to counseling and seeing them and they were okay. And we begin to have more black counselors and clinicians uh, involved. And uh, so the the mental the, the uh, landscape of mental health with the black community has has improved but there's still a lot of skepticism and um mental health uh is not limited of course to the black community and and, and covid-19 shows and exacerbated uh it in a lot of uh a lot of areas that that shows that we have a lot of work to do with mental health as a country. Uh, and um, when you're on the, the bottom of the pole, uh, it's uh, compounded, uh, but anywhere on the pole is, is bad. And um, so mental health is a huge challenge for this country. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And and I, I talk to many students, predominantly white students. Uh, I'm amazed at how many of them and, and applaud them that they are receiving services because there's a lot of students that <clears throat> that have experienced a lot of uh, mental trauma and anguish and the um, stigma that goes with declaring your mental, uh, what we call instabilities. When you say that, I, I think one of the things I think about is with um, the trauma that you've described, that you've experienced, and then the trauma, other black, not only students, but people in general, mm-hmm. the trauma is there. The need for that mental health um, resources and counseling comes along with that. Yes. And I think that's when you say the the work that needs to, that, that is continuing to be done. Um, just like I said, I think everything comes down to trauma yeah. and the trauma that people are, that, that people have faced, especially um, students of color, black people, that trauma is there. We know it. We know it's there. Absolutely. And now it's time to address it and see what we can do to move which, it forward. Exactly. Which, which one of the greater impediments to mental health, I think for the black community and for all of America is the money. Mm-hmm. People can't afford to pursue a lot of the avenues available to them for mental health. It costs, and we have not uh, come up with a, a method, a methodology, not a methodology, but uh, access, uh, financial access to where poor people can have access to mental health, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I'm hearing a lot that it seems like external factors play a huge role in your own mental health, and mm-hmm. so when you take um, all of these race issues and being discriminated against and all of these things coming from the outside, it just adds to all of these things Yes, that can compile into a mental health issue. Oh, gosh. Intersectionality is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, when you are just say, let's look at some of the, the obvious. You're female. You're up against a lot. You're a black female. You're up against a lot. You're, up, you're a, a black female from a poor community. It just keeps compounded. Oh, and you happen to be gay. Mm-hmm. Oh, and a sing- or a single mom. You know, you have all these intersectionali- uh, intersections that compounds the, the basic issue. The basic issue is enough in and of itself. When you start uh, putting all these other uh, weights up on them because of those uh, lines up in the intersection, um, it's amazing that people with mental health issues can even survive when it's compounded like that. For real. Um, I'm also wondering, as you're speaking about this, what are some healthy coping mechanisms that you have found helpful? Uh, one is a belief system. Uh, I clearly, I'm, I'm very transparent with students. And um, my teaching philosophy is more didactic. It's, it's kind of almost preachy. You know, it's like, so what are you going to do with the knowledge that you have? What are you going to do with uh, the things that you're getting out of the books? How are you going to apply them uh, into your life? Uh, what was your question again? It was uh, just like health, healthy coping mechanisms yes. that you found. Yeah. So, so it's like you got to have something to fall back on. And if you believe it, it's like some kind of religion, which don't have to be um, uh, um a belief system 
it don't have to be like Christian or Muslim or Hindu, but it's something you can fall back on. If you believe in the trees and the forest or whatever nature or whatever it is. Uh, but for me, it's been Christianity. Hmm. Uh, knowing that there's a God, I've accepted that there's a God and he cares for me. And um, I can see God in this little old white lady. I can see God in people like yourselves. I can see God in the universe. I can see God in nature when I, when I look for him and it helps me. And so, um, I'm never at a place where I feel like I don't have a place to go to. Mm-hmm. And no matter how strenuous it get, uh, cause it, it, there's a, a burden to carry to stay here at a, a predominantly white institution and teach like I teach. I'm just straight open, you know, and I, in every class I teach from a Afrocentric, centric perspective you know i am pro-black but i'm not anti-white i'm for me in my race in my community of people uh but uh i'm for everybody equally mm-hmm. uh but what what helps me is having that foundation when when things get tough i got a place to go to uh that's beyond myself mm-hmm. so um we've mentioned the belief system, I, I think that often comes with community as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. A lot of people connect over a shared belief system. Has that been true for you? Absolutely. Um, when, when, when people turn toward each other, it's amazing what, what we can display. Um, when people get that sense of community that says, I'm part of something that's equal to or greater than myself. And, uh, I'm willing to investigate. I'm willing to explore. I'm willing to find out what uh, my other community members bring to the table. You know, all of us combined are, are better than, you know, the sum is better than the the, part, the parts of, that makes up the whole. Um, I see that so much in a lot of the work I do in, in the community. Uh, from people, when I look around the table and we have... Uh, white people and black people and females and gay people and straight people and Christians and agnostics and uh, and and atheists and we don't care, you know, because we're a community. We're everybody at the table belong at the table, and they don't have to excuse themselves or make excuses for themselves. I think the I think the part that I take out of that is is what you said earlier. Um, treat the person and. It seems like that community, what you're, what you've done, uh, what you're talking about, it's you seem as people. Yes, exactly. a person first. Persons first. That is it. What's the PM co? People matter. People matter. I was actually just going to say something about that because yeah. I think so. You're the per- social work professor that I've known the longest because you were the person that taught the first class, like social work, mm-hmm. the helping profession. I think right. I remember coming in. There's this slide that says people matter, and mm-hmm. on every every assignment, every slide show, that's like what we ended with. Yeah. People mm-hmm. matter, you know, and that's, I, I really believe, I believe in humanity. Humanity is not black or white or Asian. Humanity is humanity, mm-hmm. you know, and the unique thing that we all uh, have that we can identify um, beyond the rest of the uh, the uh, animal kingdom is that we, we possess a soul, you know, we possess a consciousness, you know, when a, when a lion bites you, he don't feel good or bad. He mm-hmm. just, he won't eat, you know. Uh, but when we have to uh, uh, make decisions, we have feelings. And, and that's that's the thing I couldn't get away from, from that little white lady. I couldn't get away from my own soul. 
Mm-hmm. I'm talking to my brothers, to my roadies, to my dogs, as we say back in the day. It's like, yeah, man, we told them Pecker Woods up. But inside of my soul, it's like, that guy made his nose bleed, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or uh, somebody worked hard uh, to to construct that thing that we have burned down, you know. Uh, something in my soul resonated beyond me being black, me being uh, radical, uh, me being anti-white, you know. We can't get away from our souls. And that's what, what happens, what brings community together is that soulfulness that we share. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, we can hear uh, the same thing and laugh at it. We can see the same thing and hurt uh, because of it. We can see the same thing and be motivated by it. And it don't matter, you know, we're all experiencing and responding in, in similar ways because it's about the rhetoric we hear a lot about common ground. There's a common place for all humanity to, to come and sit down and, and, and do life together. Mm-hmm. Um, something I kind of want to move into is a lot of our conversation has been super valuable and about your experience. But another part of that that you've made clear is that um, white people need to be a part of this as well. Mm -hmm. Um, If we are looking to create more little white ladies, Mm -hmm. um, you've developed this thing, um, uh, an article that people can read on K-State's website, The Four A's of Mm -hmm. Anti-Racism. I'd like to go through that really quick. Just as an overview, I can read them off really quickly. It goes from awareness to acknowledgement to analysis to action and so starting with awareness um how does somebody go about the awareness portion uh again looking with their soul Mm -hmm. you know racism is is so clearly blatantly here and when we we just look at one aspect of 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 many isms uh, using racism as a model uh, if you want to see it, you can see it, you know. Uh, blind people can't see because they are blind. Some white people can't see because they won't bother to look. Mm. And when they, so the, the first thing is uh, is awareness. And the next thing is acknowledging what you see. Don't write it off and give some other cause to it. It's racism, dude. Mm-hmm. You know racism when you see it. It's no secret, <laughs> you know. You know who the KKK are. You know who the Proud Boys are. Yada 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 yada. Uh, you you see you you stood in lines, and I'm, I'm using the word you you in general. And you've seen black people in line in front of you being dismissed, and you address behind them. Uh, can I help you, sir or ma'am? It's like, black as I am, you can't see me. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so people need to uh, be aware and be in touch with what they see. And then the next step is acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. You know? Acknowledge that this is what it is. Acknowledge that it's clearly uh, not something else. One of the things that black people have to juggle with is perception. Racism has been so present with us that sometimes uh, we see things that look racist, but they aren't. So there's some some space for uh, perception. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's enough proof, enough solid evidence that this is racist. 
Um, I'm trying to think. The question I've written down is how is awareness of race different for white people? Because it seems so easy for people that aren't experiencing it to say that it's not there. Yes. Well, because it doesn't affect them in their everyday life. Mm. I don't think white people are really aware of their whiteness. There's no need for them to be aware of their whiteness because mm-hmm. it's accepted. Uh, and one of the things that uh, addresses that is that that sense of if you take ownership that racism exists and that you see it as a white person, then that brings in the guilt factor. Mm. Or it brings in the defensive factor. I didn't do it. Those are my grandfolks or, or whomever. I, I, I'm not responsible for it. So it, it's hard for white people to take ownership and buy into the fact that the legacy of racism is a white man's problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I was using man euphemistically. It is, you know, um, racism didn't grow off of trees. It's not part of nature that springs up from the ground. It was created mm-hmm. point by point. When, 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 when white America decided to go across the, the, the ocean and bring black folks here uh, to help their uh, economy, they could have done that without demeaning us and making Kente Kuta, Kente, it's been so long. Uh, what, what was his name? Kuta Kente? Yeah, Kuta Kente, you know. Uh, make his make him change his no, name to Toby, you know. I want to keep my name. You don't have to demean me. You, it's bad enough that you're using me as a chateau property and, and uh, I'm tilling your farms and building your houses and, and yada, yada, yada. Uh, that same thing happens with indentured uh, servants, but they were never enslaved. Hmm. To take away your worth as a person and then, and then to do it legally in a constitution. You know, we have one of the greatest uh, authors of the constitution, Jefferson, you know, he owned slaves. The greater majority of his property was built by slaves, you know, uh, and so, uh, we just need to take ownership. We white America has to, uh, would benefit themselves by taking ownership for their legacy in racism. And until they do, they'll find ways to go so far and then say, well, I'm not really the problem. And that is the problem when you are not, when you decide I'm not a racist, as opposed to saying I am anti-racist. That's the problem because you hold the greater majority of the power to change the tide of racism. Mm. Something that you said that caught my ear was the benefit to them, the mm-hmm. benefit to white people. Can you yes. explain more about that? Absolutely. It's it's like when I was going through that dichotomy between King and Malcolm and, and hating and, and switching over because of the influence of the white lady. And looking forward, I'm going like, do I want my sons to be like me? Hmm. Do I want my sons and my grandsons, but children, uh, being plural uh, and inclusive in my language, my grandchildren 
to be like me? You know, I know what it feels like to be full of hatred. It's not a good thing when, when I'm talking to my soul. So if white people could realize that you are helping your white legacy by taking that yoke off of their neck. Because people like yourself, Cole, I don't know what your background and your family history is. Uh, but some white people have to make a choice to, to, to be anti-racist at the cost of losing their family. You know, why would you bring kids into the world and then uh, put them under that kind of uh, uh, place to be? Mm-hmm. It, it has, I would imagine it would be excruciating for those who are in touch with their soul. So uh, helping the, the, the racist agenda, uh, there's a benefit for white people as well. Mm. Yeah, almost like there's a connection. And if one of us is hurting, then all of us is yeah, hurting. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially in light of when people get together and have close proximity, they fall in love. <laughs> love don't care nothing about anything but what tweaks it to, to gosh, there he is, mm-hmm. you know. And, and then they got to make that, they got to, but he's this or he's that. And, and when you come to racializing, um, those people who have the courage to pursue their hearts, uh, they're in the situation. My son uh, is married to a half-white, half-Vietnamese uh, girl. And when he was in high school, they fell in love in high school. They've been together ever since. And he came to me, Dad, uh, guess what? <laughs> and I'm going like, uh, I ain't got a problem with that, you know. Uh, in the morning when you wake up, I won't be there, okay? But I do want to tell you this. You got to wake up and step outside your door. And there's a society that's not ready for you, the black man, and you, the uh, half Vietnamese, half white uh, woman. Uh, and the, the funny thing, an uh, inside story, and I'm, you know, I'm full of stories. Uh, when my son and, and his, uh, my daughter-in-law now uh, were courting, his mom, the Vietnamese, couldn't accept her, who married a white man, couldn't accept her falling in love with and wanting to have a relationship with a black man. Mm. And uh, she had two or three other daughters who all married white men, which is common for Asians when they step across the line. Uh, uh, but anyway, the over time, the person that treated her daughters the most and the best was the black man. Mm. And to this day, they just love our son, <laughs> yep. you know, but it, it, in the initial courtship, when my son was over visiting and there was a knock on the door, he had to go out the back door. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she didn't want to no. see that stuff. You know? mm. But it's, it's there's some humor in in uh, the racist agenda and the kind of situations that we put ourselves in. Um that are even detrimental to the racists themselves. And what are you going to do when uh, your offspring brings home a mixed child? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, love half of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's well. I'll share like a a, a, a personal with myself. Um, my wife and I adopted our daughter, mm-hmm. and one of the first questions that um, you know you fill out your you know uh, you can get as sp- specific as boy girl different races 
And of course, my wife and I, we said, you know, we just want a, a child that one needs a home. And we worked through a private attorney. And one of the first questions our private attorney asked us was, what community will you be raising this child in? Because mm-hmm. he was well aware that some communities, even this has been only seven, eight years ago, mm-hmm. were not ready for a couple to have a biracial child. Right. A white couple mm-hmm. having a black child. Mm-hmm. And I think that was something my wife and I both, when we sat down and talked about it, or we processed it, you know, again, we talk about the 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 racism that can occur. Mm-hmm. Something that is race right there playing front and center, you know. Yep. And and so when you were talking about your son, all that kind of came back to, you know, I don't. Yeah, it's just it, it's too bad that that has to be a question right, asked. Right. And, but, see, and, and that's what's essential. You were willing to take the risk. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of white people get get up into a certain level of engagement until it starts costing them stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I like black people. I love black people, but I'm going to lose my friends over them. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to lose my family over them. I'm not going to. Uh, face the social stigma, and I'm not going to have to uh, deal with all that stuff. Yeah, and, and that's why I say that it's uh, it's uh, a dual uh, activity. It's it's a dual engagement from uh, both uh, communities, the black community and the mm-hmm. white community, uh, going together again for the common good. Because we we all benefit when we all have that sense of community mm-hmm. you know i live in a neighborhood when i first got there uh we spoke to all the white people we would be out walking and and whatever and they would be mum and numb and i don't know if that's the way they were with every new person in the neighborhood mm-hmm. again that perception of reality i didn't know it's because of my race or just i was new but over it took a couple years before people started acknowledging us and uh, speaking to us and, and and starting the conversations. And right now it's like, I can't get no work done in my yard <laughs> because white folks coming by, they want to talk. Yep. <laughs> and this is one of the things that led to my forays of, of my foray. There are good, decent people that have to make those choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot of courage and it's needed for white people to step up and uh, take that action, that last step. Mm-hmm. It, it also kind of seems like when people have been kept apart for so long putting a human being in front of them that they can relate to and see yes. really opens the door yes it, you, you, it, it's it's like talking to someone on the telephone and then talking to them face to face it's a whole different conversation buddy yeah yep. I remember on my job when I was told that I could not have uh, be denied certain things that I wanted, I'm going like, let, let I want him to tell me that to my face. Hmm. And when I went to talk to them face to face, I got what I wanted. Yep. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Purse first. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, again, with the awareness thing, I think you've mentioned before, like the perception of reality that there's kind of like explicit racism mm-hmm. and then like implicit dog whistles that, mm-hmm. that, um, someone like yourself who's grown up seeing that and hearing that a white person might not have the ear to pick up on some of the things that are more implicit. How would you go about addressing that with a white person and having them see what you see? Directly. Mm. For instance, um, and sometimes it's intended 
you got the explicit bias and a, a, a gray spot in there to where we don't know where the source is coming from. And someone can then, uh, just not be conscious of something. And um, when that happens, like uh, one girl was talking in the class and she said, colored people. Hmm. Which is a bias. I'm not a colored people, and uh, I don't think she meant anything wrong. But that's a social bias that, in, in some place in her history and her her understanding in her community, that was acceptable. And I, uh, on the spot, say, hey, let me let me educate you. Let me let me help you with something here. And I don't want to hurt your feelings. I, I feel that you don't didn't mean any, anything. You can use people of color. But you can't use colored people because mm. that's offensive. Mm -hmm. right? So for me, everything is respectfully direct. If it's, it doesn't matter at the end of the day whether you intended to shoot me or accidentally <laughs> shot me. Yep. You know, I want to let you know you partner a loaded gun at me, homeboy. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and then let people decide what they're going to do. Again, it, it, I want to take you back to your soul. Okay? I, I can't make you do anything. Uh, uh, but I can uh, inform you of, uh, and bring about a sense of awareness. So uh, we can't let uh, implicit or explicit bias uh, be the end of it. Mm -hmm. That's where it really begins. Yeah. It, it is bigger than just implicit or explicit. Mm -hmm. See, I, I call it self-adjusted, no, uh, excuse me, uh, self-justified bias. Mm. Uh, because you can have uh, bias and know that it's wrong, but you justify the need to behave that way. Like when I was being a black racist against white people, I knew it was wrong, but I justified it by the conditions that I had to respond to in society, by my father's history, by my grandfather's history, my great my uh, grandparents females being raped by white men it's like when i look in the mirror there's some white folks in there mm. you know uh and so i i i had to come to terms with me justifying uh my my bias mm. um so the first a is awareness and the second a is acknowledgement what makes acknowledgement so important because if you don't acknowledge it it don't mean anything, mm -hmm. you know. It's, it's, it's like denying um, that um, you know that you're wet, but you're denying the rain. Mm -hmm. Why am I wet? Because of the rain. Okay. Why is there racism? Because of the things that I see. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't, I don't say, uh, well, uh, I think uh, somebody was on the rooftop and threw a bucket of water down on me. Mm -hmm. I know that it's rain. Mm -hmm. uh, when we see racism, for the greater part, we know that it is. And we awareness means don't count it, don't limit it to some other cause. Yeah. So what does it mean to acknowledge it, I guess? There's two parts, because on one hand, if you're saying, like, I'm an anti-racist, you're acknowledging it to black people, but you're also acknowledging it to white people. Absolutely. And it's, it's important that we do both. Mm -hmm. it, 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 I, I, I would say it's equally important. If it, There needs to be some healing to take place. Uh, when we've hurt people 
and, and we know it, and we have the opportunity to apologize, that can bring healing to that person. Mm -hmm. okay? uh, at the same time, I need to bring healing to myself. I need to take responsibility for for what I, I am aware of. And, and, and don't stop with me. Now I take it back to my white community. This is where it's important. I'm letting the black community know that uh, my role or my thoughts and my actions, uh, my engagement with uh, racism, okay? And I'm not stopping there, okay? I want to make that verbal. I want to make it public or whatever, or interpersonal with my family members and the groups that I'm in. Uh, when the opportunity come, it's like, if you are not racist, then show it by, uh, and I tell folks to use some common sense, you know, you at the honky tonk uh, backwood bar with a bunch of white rednecks, whatever. Uh, that might not be the best place to stand up and, and attack them. You may just say, look, I'm, I can't deal with this and I'm walking out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's a places just to demonstrate it. And there's other places that is, is healthy and wise to, to educate and to express it mm -hmm. verbally. Mm -hmm. What uh, I'm seeing a lot too there's a lot of apprehension from not just white people, but uh, people everywhere about like the Black Lives Matter movement. It's really hard for people to say and to get behind Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. which sounds like what acknowledgement is. Like we need to acknowledge that. Why do you think that some people have such a hard time? It's amazing to me that people want to say that they're concerned about something uh, as long as it's part of something else, hmm. you know, as opposed to I'm concerned about your pain because it's just your pain. And I'm not comparing your pain to the next person's pain. When I attend to the next person, they become the focus. It's just amazing to me that people, uh, we're in a society, are transfixed with if I am pro this, if I'm pro-black, I got to be anti-white. You don't have to be anti-white. Mm -hmm. In the moment, it calls for healing and supporting of uh, the black experience. And you're not being, like I say, when I teach in the classroom, um, I'm not teaching against white kids. I'm not teaching against the white community. I'm trying to get you to own up to your legacy as coming from that uh, part of society. Uh, that you benefit from, that you're privileged by, and that uh, you don't have to go against your people to be helpful toward other people. Mm -hmm. um, moving on, so we've gone through awareness and acknowledgement. Then we have analysis. Yeah, just that's where the education part comes in. That's where your energy and your passion, instead of setting back, uh, just listening to what uh, people are saying, Investigate yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the data is there in every, when we're talking about health disparities, mm -hmm. when all of these kind of major disparities exist, if you look at education, employment, uh, mental health, physical health, uh, what's the, when people are, the, when women have babies, and they, they die, what they call that? Uh, the something rate. Uh, mortality Oh, rate. yeah, infant yeah. mortality. Yeah, 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 yeah. All of that, black folks are on all of those important, the bottom, and when you look at a lot of the uh, 
things that are, uh, that are education and advancement and doing well, uh, uh, we, we're, we're in the wrong place. We have less people uh, at the top and we have a lot of people uh, where the positive things are going on. We have some folks there, you know, uh, but very few. But down there at the bottom where things are uh, bad and, and, and unhealthy, a lot of black folks, you think we want to be there? You think mm -hmm. that's just by accident, mm -hmm. you know? So look at, look, just you go analyze instead of listening to what I'm telling you, go look for yourself mm -hmm. and, and you'll find it there. It, uh, I shared with, I think with your class and several classes, this thing called the green book, you know, the green book is where back in uh, early uh, 19 somethings, uh, black people, when they traveled across the country, they couldn't stop at any hotel they want to, eat at any restaurant they want to. There was something called the Green Book that says, if you're traveling along this way, here's a safe place to go eat. You know, that's part of our history. Hmm. White folks don't know nothing about that. But when you start looking at the data and looking at uh, specific domains, you'd be like, wow, amazed at to what degree racism uh, lifted, lifted its ugly head. I think um, that the remnants of that have carried in today with what people would call safe spaces. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people make fun of safe spaces as if people are too fragile. But framing it like that makes a lot more sense to me. Mm -hmm. Where I, as a gay man, there are places that I cannot go. Mm -hmm. And so having a safe space, it lets me know that I won't experience bigotry mm -hmm. there yeah that i won't be treated differently there yeah um but getting back to analysis enough about me uh i think another part of analysis is that we learn about history and racial history in our schools and mm -hmm. in a way it has to do there has to be some undoing of that because i can speak to my experience growing up um, in the public school system in a majority white neighborhood what i was taught about the history of racism is that it ended, that it was mm -hmm. over. Like this right. is something in the past. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, that is so, so untrue. Um, that's the power of the pen. You know, we believe what we write. We entrust people uh, for it to be vetted through uh, respectable, uh, you know, sources, uh, credible uh, uh, enterprises and so on and so forth. So we're limited to what we're exposed to. And, uh, that's why I say, do your own analysis. Don't expose yourself to just what you were told because there's an agenda behind what, why you were told this and why you wasn't told that. And there's a lot of history out there that you can discover uh, just by examining it yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you examine it yourself, uh, it is not, um, it is not uh, limited to a certain lens. You can go anywhere you wanna go. That's, that's the wonder of technology. You know, just like the the white man in, uh, a few years ago in Alabama who were anti-black, anti-this, anti-that. And he took one of those tests and found out he was 17% black. Oh, you know? Ooh, yeah. Oops. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can investigate stuff. You 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 can educate yourself and, and, and dig up on just like the archaeologists do. You know, the history is there. You dig it up. You dig in the dirt long enough. You find some bones. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, it, it's it's. And we we have uh, such an easy access to information now. You know, you, you see the song, uh, the, the uh, 
the movie, who is it, uh, Mr. Lewis, I can't think of his full name, uh, that he comes on TV and, and they go back and, and, and do all that uh, the stuff to find out where you came from and, and who your, some of your family members are and all that stuff, uh, the genealogy stuff. And it's amazing what they're discovering. Mm-hmm. Amazing what they're discovering. Well, I guess, too, for me, the hope is the analysis mm-hmm. will drive the acknowledgement as well. Yes, that's the hope. That's that's what right. in, in, in a perfect situation, mm-hmm. um, it just helps drive the acknowledgement or make the acknowledgement even deeper. I Absolutely. Think. Because it's personalized. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're not told, look over here or look over there. It's like, go wherever you want to go. Mm-hmm. And when you look for it, you find it. And that segues right into the last A. The A's don't in and of themselves, unless they're sequentially connected, they're meaningless. You know, uh, just being aware and not acknowledging makes the awareness weak. Mm-hmm. Just acknowledging without the analysis make that weak. And the analysis without action makes all of it weak. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, it's like, what are your action steps? Mm-hmm. You have the power, regardless of your, your political, your religious, your uh, sexual orientation, your culture, you still are a human being. And you have the power to do something Will you do it? Mm -hmm. And we don't have to do it on this grand scale. It's personal in the moment, in real life. You know, I've I've had situations where I'm sitting around the domino table playing cards with uh, dominoes with my friend back home. And they're talking about about white folks in ways I'm going like, no, that might be a new experience with them. But I know some good white folks. Let me tell you this story. Mm -hmm. And they're like. Oh, you Uncle Tom, you're a sellout. Uncle Tom means that you, you're black, but you act like you're white, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to get privileges. Uh, you, 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 you're the house nigger, you know, uh, and it's, it's the house nigger, not nigger. And, uh, but it's like, no, dude, I'm not going to sit here and let you talk about white folks like that because that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's where it needs to happen, interpersonally, you know. And then that's how we build institutions through personal expressions and stances. So in the four areas of anti-racism, the action that white people should take is primarily interpersonal as well. Am I right in saying that? 100%. After we've done awareness, acknowledgement, and analysis, how do we move forward into action? And this is what really uh, drove me uh, to start writing when I was writing, because I was just, I'm a single guy. I'm an assistant professor. That's on the low wrong, wrong of the hierarchy because uh, this is my third career, okay? And I'm sitting there thinking about the, my neighbors who were coming by and saying, oh, Lorenza, some folks call me Ren, some folks know me as Lucky, my pet name for a kid growing up, Dr. Lucky, whatever. And they were saying, oh, can I talk to you about what's going on? Uh, yeah, you can. And we talk and I would hear their anguish and their sense of uh, emptiness and distraught and and lack of power uh, and, and frustration and these were white people didn't know what to do and I'm and I thought I'm going like I know what to do for myself but how can I help white people okay how can I help white people find a road to healing a road to expressing a road to freeing free themselves up. And that's where the four A's came from. It was not about how do I uh, further defend the black cause? You know, how do I further support Black Lives Matter, which I do? You know, it's like, how can I help white people? 
this is what what the empathy, what the social social work part comes in, and part of those Christian values comes in, and part of those experiences with the little old white lady. She was helping me mm. at her cost, and I'm going like, I need to step across the divide and see what it feels like to be white and inadequate. Mm. To be white and labeled with guilt and, and, and hurt and pain. They 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 pain with me, but they also had their own pain. And that's what 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 drove me saying, here's some actions you can take. One, two, three, four. Something, you know, I'm straight, practical. I didn't try to go into a lot of data and this and that. Just like as a person in any space that I occupy, here's four things I can do as a white person mm -hmm. uh, to address racism by reflecting anti-racism uh, a primary thought that i had listening to that is i guess as a white person there are times when i'm in white spaces where like there's only other white people there and ra a racist topic will come up and i've always been confused about how to address that do you have any tips yeah um this is where the risk taking comes in and and the judgment um, you've heard me refer to um, Kenny Rogers' song, The Battle of, the, of Gambling. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when you run. And that's your subjective power. In the mo It's not always good to attack everything because it can be attacked. You know, I want to use my space and my time in a way that I think can be effective, and as much as possible, safe. And sometimes the effectiveness and the opportunity overrides the safety, and sometimes the safety overrides the other. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like uh, there are some people, and this is judgmental to me, but I think I cannot influence. There are some folks I think I can't influence. Guess where my energy is going? To those I think I got a shot at influencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a, a question that another student brought to my attention, Evelyn, who was part of uh, mm -hmm. the first meeting, she she was wondering, um, when we have conversations about race, who should start those? The ones whose heart and soul it touches. Race don't belong to nobody. Mm -hmm. And the conversation belongs to all of us. I, I think it's even more beneficial, it's equally beneficial for, for black people to get tired of having to initiate the conversation, but we need to. Mm. White people uh, need to take uh, some responsibility in initiating those things, uh, because again, that's taking ownership. That's saying that um, I, I stand for something and I stand against something, and here's my chance to, as I always talk to you guys, don't swallow your voice. No one can hear your voice if you don't say it, if you don't, don't use it. Your voice inside of your belly don't mean nothing. It mm -hmm. needs to come up, you know, through the system, roll across your tongue and uh, over your lips and, and out for the ears to hear. And um, that's the power that we have. And it's just a subjective uh, act uh, when to do it and, and when not to do it based upon whatever your soul says and, and the environment that you're in. I tell folks, be careful. Don't be live to tell your story it's just <laughs> not some places good to, to, to rattle that off in our yeah. oh in our, sorry in our pre-production meeting 
um, we were talking about this. And I think the first thing that came out of your mouth was safely. Mm -hmm. And Cole and I had a great conversation about that afterwards. Mm -hmm. Just what that meant about safety as someone that is white Mm -hmm. and male as opposed to someone that may be black and male or mm-hmm. black um, person. And that really, it really, I think it's drove a great conversation we had about just mm-hmm. safely. Yeah. And if we've ever experienced that where we didn't feel safe and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a great moment for us to sit down and talk about. Yeah. And I can, racism is so profound. That if you want to address it, I can almost guarantee you the opportunity is going to come. (laughs) You know, it's just, especially when you're in your domain to where there's no one to defend or speak for it. Yep. You know, people, when they look around and say, there's 15 white people around, I can say this freely. I'm with 15 black folks. I can say this freely. That's a great opportunity to say, I got a problem with that, man. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of struggling with that. Mm -hmm. And, and, And talk to people based on what you, upon your relationship with them. Mm. And that challenges them. You're going to be my friend. You need to know who I am. I'm not going to keep who I am a secret because you all this and you're free to exercise who you are. And and I can relate to you. But if I exercise who I am, then you can't relate to me. I'd be here with you. It sounds like action. So when when hearing the word action first, people might primarily think of um, rallying at Black Lives Matter movements. right, right. And things like that. But it goes even deeper than that into your personal relationships and personal life. That's where it counts the most, Cole, is personal, personal. You know, when when you had, even in slavery, when slavery was going on, and no no part of slavery was good, but you had some masters who were decent masters. Hmm. And they stood against a lot of things that the rest of the white community did... uh, uh, stood up for, they didn't do that. They said, I, I, I'm not going to treat these people this way uh, in, 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 on my plantation, which was not a good place to be, but you get the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we have a lot of personal power, a lot of personal power, and I'm just convinced that one person obviously can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And the model for that is that little white lady. Yep. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, another question I have when relating to action is there seems to be a hard or, I don't know, an inarticulated way to balance speaking up for something and speaking over the people that you're supposed to be helping. Yeah. It, what, it, one of those things is is recognizing that the people you're helping, they already have a voice. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be their voice. I'm responding to the behavior and the climate that... Uh, things are being exercised in. I'm not trying to speak up for black people. I'm speaking up for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not trying to defend blackness. I'm trying to defend what's judicious and what's decent and what's humane. Uh, uh, and I think that's the difference. It's, it's not for us to decide how people uh, will um, uh, score us, rate us, receive us. They just need to hear it. Mm-hmm. I don't care, you know, when I'm talking about uh, the reality of of, of, of uh, racial issues, I want to be respectful of you, but I'm not really thinking about you right now. I'm thinking about the issue, and mm-hmm. this is just a format. I'm res- being as respectful as you as I can, but I'm letting my respect for you uh, override what I know that I need to say and do in this moment. Mm-hmm. 
And that, so there's, there's, I don't think there's any way in the long run to address racism without creating some kind of risk, creating defensiveness or, or creating an atmosphere where defensiveness take place, where people are shamed. It's just, it's just a, there's a cost to pay for this, this ungodly thing that we've, we've given life to. Mm. Uh, and in order to kill it, we got to pay some got to pay some costs. Well, um, I think this conversation has been incredibly valuable, even for me sitting here as the interviewer. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned so much, even even taking your classes for three years, that this this conversation has helped me. So thank you for coming and speaking with us. Well, thank you guys for the pleasure to, um, it, it's, it's very um, humbling, humbling uh, to sit here and take up this space and this time to say the things that uh, I believe that um, will make a difference in, in this this subject that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. so, so thank you. Thank you a lot. Yeah. Do you have any final words? Um, that the light of life is in the living of it to your fullest each and every day of giving your best while addressing others with grace and thanks along the way. That's my mantra. There it is. Perfect. Thank you again, Dr. L. Sure. My pleasure.